So we're here today with Trooper John Marion with the Oklahoma Highway Patrol Bomb Squad. A lot of people probably don't even know that the Highway Patrol has a bomb squad. John, when you're out talking to people and you tell them, you know, what your what your job is, do you get are people surprised? They are a little bit. Um, they're taken aback because they one didn't realize the Highway Patrol even had that as a service, but two, they're also really um, curious as to how many possible calls could you possibly be running on. They're not thinking very many, and so when you explain all that you are involved in and the call volume that that you actually have. Um, they're quite surprised. Speaking of that, what made you want to go into the bomb squad or pick, you know, choose that career path? Tell us a little bit about you, John. Before I even was accepted into the patrol, I knew that I wanted to specialize in something and I was drawn towards, um, I always, I always thought being a bomb tech was interesting. And so when, when you go through the patrol and they have the different uh, troopers that come in and, and teach certain classes. Um, there were a few that uh, few bomb techs that came in and taught a few classes. And they were, the first one was a hazardous material, just an awareness class. And then another one was um, basic bomb threat awareness. Um, and I just found that to be really interesting. And when I got out on my first assignment, uh, which was in Troop J, it's um, Enid, with Garfield County was my first assignment. Um, one of the troopers there, um, he had just gotten on part time with the with the bomb squad and he was breaking. He didn't break me in, but he was breaking in a couple of the other troopers that had come out with me. And so anytime we would meet up for coffee or when we were on our own and he was on, we were on the same shift, I would just pick his brain and just ask him a whole bunch of questions because it was I was almost like a sponge just trying to soak up, you know, all the knowledge that he could give me. And, and at the time that this was great because he was new, so it was new and exciting to him. And so he was obviously willing to explain things to me. And I was excited not only for him, but for myself as well, because I was getting um, all the information I could. And it just basically um, confirmed what I wanted to do. And I was fortunate, once I realized that that is for sure what I wanna do, I decided right then and there that that was the career path that I wanted to take. And any time that I ever had to, because Garfield County is about an hour and a half away, you know, give or take. Um, anytime you would have to come to the city to get your car worked on or to do anything, I would always make it a point to swing by the bomb squad. Um, not only just to introduce myself to the other troopers that were there, um, but just to, just to be around, try to get any information I could to let them know that I was interested, to find out what prerequisites I needed. Uh, Cause I just assumed, you know, you, there's gonna be a lot involved. And <clears throat> that's when I found out all the, the prerequisites. So right now, actually, we have four part-time guys that are coming through and they've been with us for about a year now. And they are just now finishing after one year of being part-time, their prerequisites. And the reason it takes so long is because, you know, we aren't the ones that are teaching those prerequisite classes. So those classes, you know, we're kind of beholden to them whenever they're going to teach them. And they're not usually in your area. So you might have to wait six months, eight months before you can take one of the classes that you can take, which you have to take first before you take the next one. And you may have to drive quite a ways to go. 
So it takes about a year. Um, and at that point, once you have your prerequisites, you, have, you do your paperwork and it takes from that point on about a year and a half to two years before you, you have a slot to actually open up for you to go to the school. So all in all, it takes about three years for a guy, to, for a person to come in and to be accepted as a part-time uh, bomb squad apprentice and being able to get to the point of him being certified. But the certification all comes down to as well, um, it's, it's based off of what the FBI will allow you because they're the ones that actually put on the school. Uh, the school is a six week school in Alabama and they, they go on call volume. So if a squad, um, you know, after 9-11, there was a big push to, to have a lot of bomb squads out and about. And so since 9-11, you know, they've had time to get a lot of numbers over the years to see which squads are, are uh, living up to those accreditations because there's a lot of money tied in not only to teaching the troopers or the police officers, whoever's coming through to be a tech, a bomb tech, but also the, the money for the equipment. And so there are squads across the country that may have less than 10 calls a year. And over time, sometimes they say, it's kind of hard to justify the money that's being spent on because you have to be retrained every three years. You go back for a recertification every three years, not to mention the money that's tied up in all the equipment. So there have been times where, because squads don't have the call volume, their squads have been disbanded and their call volume is absorbed into a different bomb squad. So talk about our, our call volume with the Highway Patrol. You said a lot of people are surprised to hear. What What is the call volume like for the bomb squad? Uh, we average um, anywhere around the 200 to 250 calls of service a year. Wow. Um, so there are 77 counties in, in Oklahoma, and we are responsible for 75 of them. And the two that we aren't technically responsible for would be like Oklahoma County and Tulsa County. And it's because... In Oklahoma County, there's a number of squads. Oklahoma City has a has a bomb squad that is made up of uh, full-time and part-time uh, squad members. Edmond has a, a part-time squad. Uh, uh, Oklahoma County has a part-time squad. So, and then Tulsa PD has a squad as well. And then Norman uh, PD has a squad and OU has um, explosive canine handlers. So pretty much the entire rest of the state is the Oklahoma Highway Patrol yes. bomb squad is responsible yes. for. So in the two counties that we're not technically responsible for, we do assist them. So whenever there's like a, a dignitary that comes in, whether it be the president or or a, a high-ranking military official, uh, a lot of times um, they may ask for assistance uh, in certain areas. I mean, we've we already have them for we have, are responsible for them when they're traveling in different locations, but sometimes when they're in the city. Um, they may ask for help. Also, whenever the Thunder was uh, involved, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder was a part of the, the championship series a few years back. Um, you know, we assisted them with, with the sweeps of the games as well. Uh, but yes, the 75 counties, sometimes we'll get a call and we may have to drive four hours to get say, to the call. You, you travel a lot. Yes, yes. There's... A, uh, there was a lot more that was involved with with uh, joining the bomb squad than I realized uh, from from being a bomb tech. You also learn, well, 
now I guess I get to become a mechanic as well because there are certain things that you learn that you have to learn how to fix on your own because it's it takes too long to mail it off to get worked on or it costs too much money to send it off to to have it worked on. Plus, if it's gone, you have you don't have it if you need it. So you end up, you know, um, learning to to work on things, talking to the people at customer service. And thankfully, they're they're really good at uh, at knowing that most squads uh, have to do a lot of this hands on. Now it's time for our question of the day, brought to you by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Lieutenant Perkins, today's question is, why do troopers approach traffic stops on the passenger side instead of on the driver's side? I mean, we see on television that the driver's side is the proper side, right? Well, we don't just make passenger side approaches. Um, you know, each trooper's different, the terrain's different, the environment's different. So how we approach, if we approach at all, is dependent on a, a whole bunch of, a, a lot of different variables. Um, if you pull to the inside shoulder up against the concrete barrier wall, um, then yeah, it's gonna be a passenger approach on your car because you know I'm not gonna put myself in between the barrier wall and your driver's side door. Uh, I personally, I, I like to call people out and back to me, or I make a passenger side approach when I can. Um, if you are pulling to the you know, outside shoulder, uh, it's further away from traffic. I can see traffic. Um, I, I'm not gonna be right up against your door on the fog line, which the fog line is the, the line right there by the outside lane and uh, have to worry about someone, you know, running me over. Um, and it's uh, it adds an element of surprise as well. Um, it's safer, in my opinion, it's safer for law enforcement to make a passenger side approach or call, call someone back. But there are times I do make driver's side approaches as well. It is all the preference of the trooper. So we have, again, a plethora of reasons on why we might do something. Uh, a lot of those variables are, you know, the environment, how many people we're dealing with. You know, all of it can change. We're not tied down to one thing. Thanks, Lieutenant Perkins. And now back to the podcast. You had uh, some history of the bomb squad, which I thought was pretty cool. Like when we were talking on the phone last week, I, that I didn't even know. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on in, on the patrol and in our history that we don't even know about until something like this comes up and we start looking into it. You know, a lot of stories get lost, and I thought that was kind of cool. If you want to tell us something about that. Uh, prior to coming here, you know, I was a little nervous. I've never done a podcast before, so I was thinking, well, I hope I have plenty to talk about, and I thought. You know, there's a a lot of involving the patrol that maybe people don't fully realize. So the patrol came into being in 1937. And I just thought, you know, what would be interesting is to see how many people have graduated through a patrol academy. And if you were just to count through everybody who graduated through the patrol academies from 1937 to now, you're at 2,658 troopers. That's and that's not counting the people who were, were involved with the crossovers, whether they came from the Capitol Patrol or whether they came from the Lake Patrol. So we're definitely under 3,000 uh, ever. troopers, which ever. Is, which is pretty incredible. And so while I, when I found that out, I thought, well, I wonder how many people have been involved with the bomb squad. Well, the bomb squad came into being officially 
1978. And in 1978, it was comprised of um, part-time guys. And as they went along, the call volumes started to increase. And by 1995, uh, 1995 is whenever the Oklahoma City bombing happened, um, they realized that with the call volume that they've had to now, and then this huge horrific event that's just happened, um, and the time away that the troopers were away from their normal duty stations, and the time that was spent, I mean, hours upon hours working um, at that location, at the, at the Murrow building, they realized that, okay, the world is starting to go this direction. We need to be prepared for that. And at that point, they decided we need to make this a full-time squad. Well, from the, from the moment they made the decision to make it a full-time squad, 1995, it took until 1998 for it to be a realized um, full-time squad. Because it, at that point, you bring in new people, part-time guys, get them trained up in three years. Plus, you've got to take, you've got to get all the money, the grants that have that need to be written uh, to get uh, money to buy all, all the equipment, the trucks, the suits, x-ray equipment, the robots. Um, just takes a lot of money, a lot of time to get all that accomplished. So it took until 1998 for the squad to actually become full-time. And then once once it's been, so it's been full-time since 1998, and I thought, well, I wonder how many troopers have been involved with the bomb squad. And at that point, you you do the research and you find out there's only been 30 of us that have been certified bomb techs since, not, since 1978. That's an elite group. Yeah. It, it, I didn't realize that it was going to be as small as it was, but then when I started thinking about it, I realized that um, you do the, you know, there's nine of us now that are full-time and you're like, okay, I, I guess that's not so um, out of the realm of where I was thinking we would be. Because what, what you find out is because it takes, let's say three years to become a bomb tech once you sign on as a part-time person, once you go through the certification, you sign a contract that says, I will stay, I will be on the bomb squad for a minimum of five years. And that's to justify the time and the money that's being spent into, you know, to being put into you to be trained. And so by the time your contract is up, that's eight years of your life, your career that you've been involved with the bomb squad. And at that point, you know, you're, you're coming up on going to your next recertification date. Well, the recerts are good for three years. So, Guys have a tendency, once they get in, the history shows that once they get in, they're in there for life. The majority of, majority of people that have gotten on the squad will spend their entire career once they get there with the bomb squad. We have guys right now who uh, are approaching 40 years of service. They're in the to mid to upper 30 years of service with the patrol, and there are some that have 22 years on the bomb squad and it's just a wealth of knowledge and yeah. what's scary is some of these guys you know could retire at any moment whenever they decide that moment's right for them and with them goes all of that knowledge and so right now um you we just have to take it the ones that will stay around um after they leave have to take it upon ourselves to try to soak up as much of that information that they have um 
what's crazy is until today, um, I could say that out of the nine of us that were on the squad together full time, I was the only one who was not eligible to retire. Wow. Okay. And then November 1st, we had a part-time person uh, brought over uh, full-time because we had someone who retired a couple of months ago. And so he was brought in to help uh, fill the gap and replace him um, or uh, attempt to, you know, just keep us whole. Um, so now there are two of us that are full-time that have, that don't have enough time on to retire, but everybody else does. They have over 20 years. So they could go tomorrow and the two of you would have the whole state to take <laughs> care of. Basically, yes. yes. <laughs> Can, talk to us a little bit about the kind of calls that you guys do respond to. What, what are what are you guys going to? Well, <clears throat> the, the, the calls uh, just run the whole gamut. You know, we run on calls for dynamite, old dynamite that used to be able to be purchased. Uh, Grandpa used to be able to go down to the co-op and he's, if he wanted to, let's say, build a, you know, have a pond or get rid of some tree stumps, he could go into the co-op and buy some dynamite and some blasting caps, and he'd be able to take care of it himself. And, of course, when you would go in, they would explain to Grandpa uh, how to maintain the dynamite because it's made, you know, it's up from volatile uh, material, nitroglycerin. And so there's a way that you have to maintain that. And if you don't maintain it, the dynamite becomes can become unstable. And once it's unstable, it becomes even more dangerous than it would be just sitting there. And so what happens over time is uh, these people pass on and the people that come in to try to clean up the area to either sell it or, or whatnot, they come across this old dynamite. And by then the dynamite's in poor condition. And that's when they would call us and we'll come in and, and handle the the dynamite um when you say handle like safely detonate we'll we'll we will safely render it safe that's <laughs> we <laughs> we definitely don't want it to explode for sure there's there's certain ways that you would have to handle it uh in order to dispose of it safely and aside from from dynamite we get a lot of because we're in oklahoma there's a lot of oil field uh explosives that they use for drilling, things like that. Um, it's not uncommon, actually, in certain parts of the state for people to call in and say they found explosives sitting on the side of the road because it's fallen off a rock truck, you know, whether it didn't explode and it was just part of the rock, you know, the, that they're moving and it falls off the truck. Um, so, or people, unfortunately, steal it. They'll steal the explosives from the, uh, the different uh, places that would have them. Uh, then, of course, we have uh, your uh, improvised explosives, ones that people uh, unfortunately are finding the recipes, quote unquote, uh, for these different explosives, whether they be for a dry ice bomb, a sparkler bomb, uh, different kinds of pipe bombs. You know, just it just runs the gamut. And these, there's even been calls where kids decided they wanted to make pipe bombs for a, a science project. And they show up to school with the pipe bombs and the teachers are like, uh, <laughs> we need to call someone. So, <laughs> so yeah. Those are fun calls. Yeah, you yeah you're like, that okay. as education you're like is this the, the only one you have? Oh, you have more at your house? Okay, I guess oh, we need to go no. there too. So things like that. Um, military ordinance. You know, it wasn't uncommon for in the past for people, veterans to 
from these foreign wars to come back from either World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and bring back old military ordnance as a souvenir, whether it be a grenade, a mortar round, something like that. Uh, there have been times where, and so we'll come back, like I said, these people will end up passing away and the family's going through their belongings and they come across some grenades or other military ordnance. So we'll get called to that too, as well. Um, on top of those, we of course have our, our bomb threats. Um, this year has been a little odd with the COVID. Um, most of the places, especially when the COVID first hit, you know, they shut down. And some of the, the biggest targets for these bomb threats are schools and schools just haven't been going. You know, courts for a while, that's another big hotspot for bomb threats. Uh, for a while there, they weren't having court. Um, so, so you got a nice little break then from those. So, well, uh, there was a break in, in some of the calls, um, but we, we use that as an opportunity to, um, to train and to also uh, maintain the equipment. Uh, because sometimes when you have calls, like last week I, w I worked seven days seven days that week because of calls. Um, you know, you sometimes when you're running from call to call, especially when they're three hours away or more, um, at that point, you don't have time to work on the equipment or to train because you're actively uh, on a mission. So we use that as a time to, to kind of go over that kind of stuff because what's happening is on a given day, um, we're involved with not only training on equipment that we have, but reading up on other training techniques because new training techniques are being developed daily. We're getting a lot of intel from the military overseas because what's happening is some people are bringing some of this bomb making stuff overseas and bringing it back to the U.S. And so we're, bring, we're getting intel not only on the devices that are coming from overseas, but we're also getting intel on how best to and safely handle um, these same devices. So we have that. We have task force meetings where we meet up with other bomb squads across the state, not only them, but the FBI and the ATF, uh, because we talk about calls that we're starting to, that we're receiving. We have those monthly meetings. And now it's time for the Highway Safety Update, brought to you by the Oklahoma Highway Safety Office. Speed is the number one contributing factor to fatality crashes in Oklahoma. More than 28% of speed-related crashes happened on city streets, followed by 22% on interstate highways and 14% on county roads. In 2019, February saw more speed-related crashes than any other month. The peak time for speed-related crashes in 2019 was during the morning and afternoon commute, 7 and 8 a.m. and 4 to 6 p.m. The most likely person to be in a speed-related crash males between the ages of 20 and 24. More than half of speed-related crashes in Oklahoma in 2019 were caused by drivers who were going too fast for traffic or road conditions. None of these crashes were accidents. All of them could have been prevented. We ask that you do your part. Slow down, buckle up, put your phone down. Always drive sober and drive safe. Live up to the Oklahoma standard. And now back to the podcast. You talked about dignitary visits and doing sweeps for that. Talk about that. Is that that's some of your call volume also or some of the work that you guys do? Yes. We we actually, believe it or not, re receive a lot of uh, requests 
to do uh, sweeps of hotels, um, different uh, motorcades, uh, buildings, uh, because if there's a dignitary that's coming, whether it be uh, a politician uh, or a military figure, you know, they're going to be coming in and staying at a hotel, going to a different location to speak at the speaking engagement. And so they want to make sure that not only is the speaking engagement going to be safe for them, but also where they're staying is going to be safe for them and their motorcade. So it's just, um, you know, at different times, especially during the election, election seasons, you know, about every two years you've got something going on on that front. And, and then, of course, we do have sweeps of, um, you know, we're contracted to do the Oklahoma State football assignments uh, for the, f the football game. So we'll go four hours before the, the game on Saturdays and sweep the stadium. And we are there for the game in, in case there's any incident that would need our attention. And talking about the training bill, that bomb suit is no joke. How heavy is that again? It's about 100 pounds, just under 100 pounds uh, total, and that's including the helmet. And that's distributed across your body. And it, um, if you're not accustomed to having that kind of weight on you, um, not only that, but you're, it's almost a feeling of claustrophobia as well because you have your helmet down. And so it makes your breathing much more difficult. You know, having that extra 100 pounds on your body, already you're breathing heavier from just walking but now you've got this helmet with the, the visor shut down and you just feel kind of, you know, so there's a lot of people who might be interested in the career path to come here and be on the bomb squad. But then when they put that suit on, they realize yeah, that never mind, I don't want to do this anymore okay. because they feel claustrophobic. What was that like for you the first time you put that suit on? It was very awkward because you, when you put it on, you, they give you a number of, of things that you need to accomplish. And whether it's, you know, laying on your back and getting up on your own or they throw a quarter down and you have to get down and pick it up and get back up, you know, just different things. Um, there's other things that we, we would have people do if they were interested in pursuing that career to make the, make sure that they feel comfortable and, and that they can do the, the actual uh, job itself. But you feel kind of like a turtle a little bit. You look like a turtle because, I mean, the suit's <laughs> green anyway. Um, and if you keep the helmet on, like if you take your jacket, your, your vest off, but you still have your helmet on, you feel like a bobblehead because the helmet is so heavy and your neck is not used to that weight on your head. You just feel like at any moment you're just joggling back and forth your head, you know. How many people have you seen vomit in those things? You know, I haven't seen anybody vomit in it. Um, I think that the... The places where things like that might happen might be actually in the training uh, in, in Alabama because Huntsville is where the training um, center is. It's at an old military base there at Redstone. Um, it gets hot and humid there. And so if you're in that suit for any length of time, you know, you run the risk of having heat exhaustion or something like Passing that. Yeah, that and then you're stressed falling. out trying to do your yeah. training and all that gear. So, like, I'd imagine people vomiting those all the time. Putting the suit on in the summer is rough. And the thing is, when it's it's hot, you can't. You're not expected to stay in the suit the whole time. So if this if the mission is taking a, a length of time, you're going to end up switching out, and your partner is going to get the suit on and, and finish the job, because you're only going to be in the suit for X amount of time. And on any call, any given talk, we send a minimum of two bomb techs, and that's the FBI standard, minimum two bomb techs. Um, 
So in the summertime, you definitely don't want to be the second guy in the suit. Oh. I mean, it gets it, it is a wet mess to put that suit on when you <laughs> you're sitting there in somebody else's sweat. Um, now the season guys always volunteer to go yeah, first. Yes, volunteer. Yes. I'll go first. Low man on the totem pole is the last one to get in the suit. Um, in the wintertime, it's not so bad. You can work much uh, much longer because one, the suit's warm. So you know you, you know you, you actually don't want to get out of the suit because it's warm. So. I imagine your Christmas presents are deodorant and body wash. <laughs> as long as it's not Axe body spray, I think I'm good. That's what my 13-year-old son yeah. uses. <laughs> I'm well familiar with that sense. <laughs> so another thing that's always a hit when we go, you know, visit schools or anything is the Bomb Squad robot. People are always very fascinated by that. T- talk to us about the robot, when you use the robot, how it's utilized. Um, so we have, we have six of them, okay. and they're spread across the state. And a lot of that's because, you know, how we talked earlier about how there's 75 of those counties we've got to cover in in great distances. So we have them spread out. We have some in Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Muskogee, Durant, and hopefully coming soon in in Ada. That's what we're hoping for. And that just allows us to be able to get there as quickly as we can. Uh, But the robots um, are a great tool. We like to use those, you know, it's um, with with the radio pack that's on it, it's a wireless system that we can be, depending upon the terrain, about a mile to a mile and a half away from an actual device. And that's now if the device is inside of a concrete building up on the third or fourth floor and we're in a city, you know, it's going to cut down on, on the amount of um, distance that you can be. You know, it's not going to reach quite as far, but we like to keep it and use it for to keep us at a safe distance. Um, you know, distance is our friend in, in, in this line of work. One thing that, uh, you know, people often ask us too is if we name the robots and unfortunately, no, we're, we're not, uh, we haven't taken the time to do that, but the robots are very expensive. So the, the, we just recently purchased a new robot because one was destroyed in, uh, one of the calls that we went on. And I believe that robot is just under three hundred thousand dollars. Wow! You know, it's over two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars. That's an expensive employee. Yes, yes. And I just want everyone. I'm very thankful to have it, but I just want them to remember that we can replace that one easier than me. (laughs) 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 But that's why we we like to use the robot when we can. uh, But we also uh, like to use the suit as well. That's what we've all been trained on. Um, And sometimes. you know, the robot can't get to certain places, so sometimes it's easier to put the suit on and, and do it manually. But like that robot, I guess, like, let's say you get a call of a, I don't know, a sp- suspicious box or a suspicious backpack somewhere, you can send that robot and you you can see it's got the camera and mm-hmm. you can look and go, oh, well, it's, it's just some books in the backpack. It's it's fine. Like he, he's kind of that frontline defense mm-hmm. to see what you're dealing with. Yes, we can use that robot to go up and, and take a look around. We use it for surveillance. Uh, there are times that we'll go on tacting calls um, and they can use the robot. You know, we'll use the robot for them to assist with surveillance, you know, walk, going around the house, seeing if we can see inside windows, things like that. So it does have a great, uh, great purpose, lots of uh, uses for it. Uh, it's a great tool. Very thankful to have it. So, Johnny, what is your favorite thing about your job? I think that the, my favorite thing about the job is it is a high speed job. Like when I say high speed, I mean, 
you get to work with uh, really cool equipment. You get some great training. Um, you work with a bunch of like-minded people when it comes to uh, each situation is a problem. And so you're, you're working with a team to try to figure out um, how to best to solve that problem. And that I really enjoy that because, like I said, uh, so that's that part's the high speed. Now it, it's at a low pace though because you got to go slow with this job. So if you're gonna, you can't really if if you get antsy and can't sit still for very long, it's probably not the position for you because you don't want to rush anything with this one because, you know, one mistake on this one, and I mean it's a big deal, you know, um, but. You know, working the road, you have the team camaraderie, but you're by yourself in your car. Uh, it was an adjustment, uh, but I like it when, that on the squad, you're on the team, but you're with them. And on any given call, at a minimum, there's two of you, sometimes three. It just depends on the call. And there's just a, a great sense of teamwork and team camaraderie whenever you are working on something together like that. And I think that's what I uh, really enjoy the most. Um, not only with the with the techs, but also our canine handlers. Yeah, I was going to say, well, there, you have a, two canines? We actually have four. Four canines. Four canine handlers and four canines. And over the course of the, uh, of the bomb squad, since 2002, we've had canine handlers. There's been eight of them. Um, and those are single purpose dogs. They only work on um, detecting explosive materials uh, and they are a great tool and they go along with us as well and they have their set of goals um, and uses that they do when they when they get there and once they're done with that they can help us put the suit on get equipment off you know it's just like a, a second set of of hands to help out as well so we're, we're very thankful to have them as well and here i was i thought he was going to say his favorite thing about his job was me <laughs> it's working with it's working yeah. with Mistel, right? Yes. Yeah. yes. You missed you missed that part. He yes. did. I was like, what? I'm not saying it was on my mind. Yeah, I know I'm the best thing about John being a trooper. He thought you already knew this that. friendship. Our friendship is the best thing about being a trooper. That's what I would have said. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Had you asked me, I would have been like getting to be besties with Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very cool. We appreciate you coming on the podcast yeah. and talking about this. Well, thank you very much for having yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. I think people find it very interesting. We don't, we don't just have troopers and vehicles out on the roadways. I mean, that, that is the bulk of it, but there's yeah. so many other things that the highway patrol does. You know, we talk about the training and we have named this podcast train like a trooper. And I can easily say that John has been the main influence for my weightlifting, uh, afterwards uh, after patrol school and continuing that uh, we became friends and bonded in the gym workout partners yep we i'm did. sure you have to kind of to wear that suit you probably have to work out a little bit just to even it, it's wear a good idea suit. to do it yes. yeah and i will tell you john has awesome pecs like he's the one that told me incline press will make him set up real nice and I, that is like some <laughs> advice that I will, I will never forget. And I always share it with everyone. Well, too the bad key, this is only audio. Right? The key <laughs> to awesome pectoral development, incline press. Yes. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Little, little piece of advice yep. we didn't think we were going to get talking about the bomb squad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just like to share all, like, John's a great dude. And people need to know well, that. I appreciate that. Thank he trains much. all the time. And I will say that out of anyone after patrol school, you influenced my uh, physical uh, fitness and 
and weightlifting more than anyone. And the information you've passed on to me is invaluable. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for saying that. It's very kind. Appreciate it.